Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, August 14th, 2009. This week, episode 137 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Hey Joe, good to be here. Always a pleasure. Good day, Cliff. We've also got Environmental Annie sitting in with us and Koalecki. Hey Joe, thank you. And at the controls is the wingman, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon. Today, Chris, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, will be joining us at halftime and for the roundup. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, and we've got Richie Shoemaker, MD. Dr. Shoemaker will be joining us for the hour. Got some new research and should be an exciting show. We'll do a little halftime segment, thank our sponsors, talk to Dr. Dieter. Then we'll come back for the second half with Dr. Shoemaker, and of course, we'll do the roundup as always. Check out that iaqradio.com website. We've been adding a blog, and we've really added quite a few um, new documents under the resources button on the right-hand side. First, before we get started, we've got to thank our sponsors. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Drys Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Drys is first in drying solutions. Visit them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. To contact the show, you just call that 724-444-7444 number. Our show ID is 1547. You can also download the show from our website, iaqradio.com, or follow the when you go there, follow the link that says go to the show, or you can get the show from iTunes. And we also have those IICRC continuing education credits, IAQ Council renewal credits, and we now have ABIH renewal credits for you CIHs out there. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com, 
and we'll get you out the quiz for the show and a little application form. You can also send us questions and uh, comments, suggestions, etc. Cliff's email is cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to Cliff for today's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your answer is very easy. Simply email it to cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Congratulations to John Lapotier of MicroShield Environmental Services. In Winter Springs, Florida. Uh, John's most recent... Microband trivia champion who exhausted all of the prizes that that we had offered, <laughs> and for his last microband trivia victory, John received a hundred Legend Reward Points, a customer loyalty incentive program offered by Legend Brands, and we've got plenty of them, so John can continue to play and compete. Legend Reward Points can be redeemed for a wide range of gifts. Learn about the Legend Brands Reward Program by visiting the website www.rewards.legendbrands.net. The source for today's microband trivia question was Mosby's Medical Dictionary. We're looking for a mystery word. The definition of this word includes poison produced by and derived from plants and animals. Examples of our mystery word include abrin and ricin from beans and strychnine from an evergreen tree. The substance can enter the body through ingestion or inhaling. The toxin name, the mystery word. Back to you, Joe. Okay, well... Let's get our introduction for Dr. Shoemaker. Live with us today from Pocomoke, Maryland, and practicing there since 1980 is Richie Shoemaker, MD. Dr. Shoemaker's practice is dedicated to the diagnosis, treatment, as well as research. Uh, and Dr. Shoemaker is a family practitioner. He's been practicing in a rural area since 1977 after graduating from the Duke Medical School. He became interested in illness caused by biologically produced toxins, biotoxins in 1997 when there was an outbreak of a new type of human illness from a dinoflagellate called Fisteria. First it was in the Pocomoke River, a tributary of the Chesapeake Bay, then in 25 other estuaries in the region. As the result of his first experiences, which led to the first publication of uh, papers on diagnosis in 07, treatment in 08 of Fisteria illness acquired in the wild, He's been researching biotoxin illness since then, including illnesses acquired following exposure to water-damaged buildings. He's published over 42 papers, written six books, was named Family Practice Physician of the Year for Maryland in 2002, and was runner-up for the National Award in 2002. Now, for those of you that are regular listeners, you know Dr. Shoemaker joined us two shows uh, for two shows back in April and May of 2008, and we learned a great deal about his practice and research work. If you missed those shows, go back to the IAQ Radio archives and listen to episodes 79 and 80. We're not going to have time to review much from those shows, but we'll set things up with a discussion of current issues surrounding water-damaged buildings. 
Then we'll focus on two new research papers published by Dr. Shoemaker. And I urge anyone not familiar with the medical terminology to print or have handy on your computer screen a copy of the Biotoxin Pathway. It's available on our homepage, iaqradio.com, right below the announcement stating that Dr. Shoemaker will be on this week. Do we have some music for Dr. Shoemaker? Today. <laughs> All right, or talk to him today. Good afternoon, Dr. Shoemaker. Good afternoon, guys. Good to hear from you. And wonderful show, I must tell you. Well, thank you. thank you. It's great to have you back. We've uh, been having a little summer break, but we thought this was a, an excellent opportunity to, uh, you know, kind of break some new things for the listeners out there. So let's start with that. What is new? Uh, what, what have you been up to? And uh, what can you fill our listeners in on? Well, I think you picked the right music for what's new because. Cure the Boy is what one of the papers is all about. I'm not talking about fixing Tommy and all his problems. <laughs> what I'm looking at, I did like that. <laughs> what I'm talking about is for the first time we have a nice, well, I think it's a nice organized approach to pediatric illness. And, and basically, when we look at children exposed to the interior environments of water-damaged buildings, their illness presentation is a little different than adults. They follow the same kinds of principles, but I had not seen any uh, roster of children presented with, you know, good, complete data and nice, uh, full Excel spreadsheets of data uh, until March when we made a presentation to the uh, International Association for Chronic Fatigue Syndrome on 163 patients, uh, age 3 through uh, 18, uh, who... Uh, had exposure to water-damaged buildings and had a multi-system, multi-symptom illness of which chronic fatigue was present in all of them. We compared those 163 to 55 uh, control patients, and, and, and Cliff and Joe, these control patients are other children coming to my office for well evaluation, so maybe they were a little too healthy and that they were all well, but nonetheless, there were tremendous differences uh, in symptoms as well as in uh, blood test results. Uh, sometimes children will be difficult to get a good reliable history from, especially if there's some attention deficit type things going on. But the labs that these kids have are ones that just jump off the page. And seeing the tremendous statistical difference between cases and controls uh, was, was pretty much an eye-opener. And, you know, it was interesting because the chronic fatigue world basically says chronic fatigue syndrome uh, exists if it's still there after you've ruled everything else out. But everything else never included exposure to water-damaged buildings. And that esteemed body uh, did agree to modify uh, their, their definition by adding exposure to water-damaged buildings as a necessary uh, rule-out before you get to chronic fatigue. So this is the first time that an international agency has... Uh, put their imprimatur, if you will, on uh, fatigue as well as lab abnormalities resulting from exposure to water damage buildings in children. 
Okay, and this is the exposure to interior environments of water-damaged buildings causes CFS-like illness in pediatric patients. And will we, we can put that up on the website when we're done here today. Doctor, did, okay. you, did you do any other sampling besides blood? In every one of these kids came with a analysis of something from a building. There was a history of water intrusion, and they either had ERMI testing uh, or they had air testing or they had tape lift testing showing uh, evidence of amplified growth of microbes in the water-damaged building. Is that, is that what you're after? No, no. I just wondered whether you did anything other than just um, draw blood from them. Were there any other well, things? Sure. For the children that were old enough, we did visual contrast sensitivity testing. That really matures at about age six or seven usually. So we decided to not include that in the final paper because not everybody had it. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that we wanted our data sets to be pretty inclusive. They had histories done. They had physical tests done. They had pulmonary function testing done. Uh, but the main thing was blood, as you mentioned. Okay, let me kind of recap, if we can, before we go into more detail about these two studies here. Um, I just want for everybody to be on the same pathway, or on the, well, I'm talking about the biotoxin pathway. According to this biotoxin pathway, when the body acquires antigens, most people can clear them away. If the antigen is cleared away, no problem. But when it's not cleared away, there can be a direct effect through nerve cells, and there may be binding through fat cells that can lead to a cascade of responses. Is that okay so far? Pretty good. Uh, the real issue is that we're looking at antigen detection as the first step in developing immune responses. There's two kinds. Innate immune responses come first. That's where the proteins with funny names like cytokines and complement come in. But that antigen must be detected by receptors to, to lead on to this, this whole event. After there's been detection, then the antigen has to be processed. And the processing is where immune response genes, or HLA, comes in. Okay. During the processing, we've got the HLA. All right. Let me go on. If it isn't removed, then, like you say, the innate immune detection system goes to work, uh, sort of alarm goes off. If you look at the function of the pattern of these receptors, you see a steady stream of genes, each setting off more genes, etc. You talked about the cytokines, chemokines. These are, uh, at excessive levels, cause problems with the leptin receptors in the hypothalamus, leads to reduced MSH, which is a hormone, and then increased cytokines can also lead directly to immune system symptoms and then complement. You mentioned complement, but I want to get a little more on that. And also self-activation and production of C4A. Can you just tell us a little more on that? Sure can. You know, it's fascinating. If you look at a paper that was written in 1972, uh, Dr. Lewis Thomas was writing for the New England Journal, and he wrote about germs, and he was looking at the host response. And he talked about how an individual responds to a very, very small number of molecules. Now, he was looking at bacterial endotoxin, and of course we have that in water-damaged buildings, but he talked about this 
amplifying cascade of inflammatory responses. This is before we called it innate immune responses, by the way. And he said this amplified response, this multiplying over and over and over again, can create the illness itself. And his comment was that it is the host response that becomes the illness. The initiating factor is only a few molecules. So if we go to the biotoxin pathway and we have antigen detection by receptors, and there's a variety of different kinds. These are kind of like uh, antenna, if you will, that are look constantly searching for foreign invaders. You know, is the virus in me? Is uh, uh, beta-glucan in me? And these antigens are what we call foreign. They're not our cells. And the body has a defined mechanism to sound the alarm when this invasion of antigens takes place. And you've, you've had the, the, the symptoms that I'm talking about when you had the flu and you get muscle aches and you're tired, your temperature's hot one minute, cold the next, you break out in sweats and maybe a headache and you're just exhausted. It's not the flu causing that. It is the host response to the antigen that is the problem. And it's no different in people with exposure to water-damaged buildings. If the antigen is processed, and some of the mechanisms are pretty sophisticated, but this antigen processing has about five discrete steps that each can be impacted by inflammation and toxins, so that if there is a problem with antigen processing, you never get to the stage of clearance of the antigen, even with removal from exposure, because you don't make an antibody. Now, the antibody formation is acquired immunity. And when Dr. Thomas writes in 1972, all he's talking about is this incredible over-response to sound the alarm that mobilizes defenses that should lead to antibody formation and clearance. I mean, you get better from the flu when you make an antibody to it. I mean, that's why we get flu shots, however many we're going to need this year. Gosh, three, four, or five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but every time you, you put that antigen in you, whether it's a flu shot or not, you know people, and, and I've had reactions like this, you feel terrible occasionally. Not everybody does. And what that says is there is a delay in antibody formation. And those people get sick from the flu, and then and they flu shot, and they feel bad. Well, the problem that we see in our people exposed to water-damaged buildings and illness is that a subset of folks have particular genetic makeup where they just don't make antibodies properly. And so they don't clear the antigen. And even if they're removed from a building, they'll stay sick because this detection response goes nuts all the time still. And it is the host response, this detection response, that leads to the illness that I treat. Okay. Annie? Yeah, what is an HLA haplotype, and why are they found in nearly 100% of water-damaged building illnesses? There are genes that we get from mom and genes we get from dad found on chromosome 6 called immune response genes. And uh, the, the HLA, or histocompatibility locus A, or human leukocyte antigen, that the jargon can get pretty rough, is basically saying there's a segment of this DNA that can be mapped and identified 
is having functioning with uh, making antibodies. Now, it's fascinating that there is a hole in this uh, antigen processing system uh, that is correlated very nicely with HLA, and it's been fascinating to me that just about everybody uh, who, with an illness from water damage building, will have a particular kind of HLA. It's almost as if if you don't have a susceptible HLA, you're going to make an antibody and you'll be fine. And if you do have a susceptible HLA, you're not going to make an antibody and you won't be fine. I see. And that's where we head up into either it directly affects the nerve cell or goes into a fat cell. Is that where we're Early at? Early on, some of the work done looking at cytokine responses was uh, emphasizing fat cells. We now know that these receptors according to recent literature, and I mean, this is stuff published since, like, in 2007, 2008, uh, are found on many cells besides fat cells, just about all white blood cells and cells that line blood vessels called endothelial cells make these uh, receptors as well. So it, I guess the biotoxin pathway needs to be updated uh, in that it's more than just fat cells. Okay. Yeah, uh, Dr. Shoemaker, other than this genetic makeup where some people have the ability to clear antigens and, and, and some don't. Are there any other uh, factors that make young children in particular at risk from, you know, environmental illness or susceptibility to uh, water damage building related illness? I, I think we're going to be able to find more and more once our genomics assays are done. Now, I don't want to throw more jargon at you, but basically we can now use a computer program called Rosetta Reader that will analyze 35,000 genes involved in inflammation. And we're looking so far, there are differences in adults compared to children. It almost looks like the lack of inflammatory control from hormones like MSH that you mentioned. And there's another one that you need to know about called VIP or vasoactive intestinal polypeptide. It looks like those are really important in perpetuating inflammation in adults and children, but in children especially, without these regulatory uh, hormones present, the genes of inflammation just go absolutely haywire. So in addition to genetics, it is these hormonal regulators that children have more trouble with deficiency compared to adults. Okay, let me go to um, the first paper. I don't know that we even named it. Innate Immunity, MR, Spectroscopy, HLA, DR, TGF, Beta-1, VIP, and capillary. Here's the word I was trying to get to. Hypoperfusion. Define acute and chronic human illness acquired following exposure to water-damaged buildings. Okay, I got that out. Now, in that paper, I think we have three... um, as I understand it, you're trying to explain three things. The genetic basis of differential susceptibility to initial illness. We've talked a little bit about that. The absence of recovery following removal from exposure and the accentuated inflammatory responses seen in those previously ill but then re-exposed. Now, the first sentence after that states, water-damaged building, building illness now implicate physiologic mechanisms including capillary hyperperfusion and chronic inflammatory response syndrome, which I know we're going to talk more about, CIRS, demonstrated in affected patients but not in controls. 
What is hypoperfusion? Let's make sure the radio gets across the language. That's H-Y-P-O, or hypo, like hypodermic needle. This is reduced perfusion or reduced blood flow. And the blood vessels that we're looking at here are the very smallest ones, the capillaries. Remember, blood's going to go into arteries and then arterioles, a smaller division, and then into capillaries, and then it gets collected back up into small veins called venules and veins, and then back to arteries again. So the capillaries are the smallest blood vessels. They've got uh, some smooth muscle at the beginning of these capillary beds that can go into contract and shut off flow altogether in capillary beds. But if the smooth muscle controlling gatekeeper, so to speak, is open, then blood flow should be coming widely dispersed in capillaries. And, and a simple example of that is if you scratch yourself on your forearm with your fingernail, you might see some redness appear if you push down hard enough. And that's just showing increased delivery of blood into the smallest blood vessels, and you can see that with a naked eye. What we're looking at is a problem from inflammation chemicals inside the smallest blood vessels that you can't see with the naked eye. And so if we send out one of these inflammation chemicals, call it a cytokine, it is going to reduce blood flow almost by creating a log jam at the upstream side of this capillary bed so that some blood gets through but not enough. And if you have some blood coming in, you get a little bit of oxygen, but not enough. You get a little bit of sugar, but not enough. So functionally, the cells that are downstream from the cytokine effect start to starve. And when they starve, they use up their stored sugar. And then when they store, use up their stored sugar from their glycogen, remember that's the storage molecule that we keep our warehouse of energy, when that's gone, these cells function as if they're not getting much oxygen at all, and they don't work right. And the body starts to burn extra protein to generate sugar for these starving cells. And this cascade of metabolic events that follows perfusion uh, in, it functionally means that we come, become about 5% as efficient as what we should be at creating energy for the cell. If you don't have the energy for the cell, it doesn't work right. So capillary hypoperfusion is a basic physiologic mechanism that is primary in saying, why does somebody else who's sick have brain fog and shortness of breath, and why does somebody else who's not affected not have shortness of breath and brain fog? Okay. Now, the reason that... I'll be real quick here. The reason that I put in MR spectroscopy in this paper was not to make an even worse sentence that my English teacher would go after me for. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, was to say that if you have capillary hypoperfusion and not enough oxygen delivered, the poor cell starts to starve and it will accumulate lactic acid. And we call that lactate. Using this special magnetic resonance technique, we can look at brain function as a, as a relationship to elevated lactate. The higher the lactate, the worse the hypoperfusion, and the worse the nerve cell function. 
And then when you fix the inflammation chemicals, the lactate goes back to normal and the brain goes back to normal. So this is kind of a, a new therapy based on capillary hypoperfusion. Cliff, uh, doctor, does water damage building illness occur immediately or quickly or does it occur over time? It's an important question, and the answer has to do with what is the host response. Now, I don't want to be circular here. If a person has been made ill previously from a water-damaged building, we know that when they are put back into the building, that we can measure following 20 minutes of exposure. That's it. We can measure rises of inflammation chemicals, especially C4A that we mentioned a few minutes ago, and I'll try to define that uh, as, as we get to it. But this one chemical is going nuts rapidly. Someone who's not been made ill, who has genetic susceptibility, will have a rise in C4A, but much more delayed. And someone who does not have genetic susceptibility, and, and again, nothing in biology is 100%, but this is getting close, if you don't have genetic susceptibility, that rise of C4A basically just doesn't take place. So if you are already affected, you get sicker quicker. Got it. And that immune mechanism is one that uh, is incredibly important. Actually, it was the Indoor Air Quality Association that hosted my paper in 2007 that was the first time to ever bring forth these materials. So Hopefully some of the listeners were at that convention in, in Las Vegas and, 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 and listened to what I had to say. But sicker quicker, we now know, correlates with ERMI testing. I know people argue about ERMI, but we look at a building index ERMI, and if it's over two and you've been sick before with low MSH, if you go back into that building, you're going to get sick, and you're going to get sick measurably on day one with C4A, day two with leptin, Day three with MMP9, uh, VEGF gets thrown in there, and so does some of these clotting studies. So the physiology is well-defined for illness. Now, let's take the guy who has genetic susceptibility but feels fine, and he goes into a building. It's a new job. Uh, he's going out to a new restaurant. His illness will not be measurable in the first day. And when the illness converts from not being there the first day to being there on uh, day 30 or day 60 or day 90 involves a lot of elements that I don't have the data. I can't tell you what you need to convert illness uh, from uh, non-existent to present. Certainly there is some people that will have exposure uh, and they get sick very quickly. Uh, compare that to people that get sick very slowly. I just don't have those data. Now, I love the fact that, you know, I know how hard you're working to to re correlate or relate these symptoms in people to changes that are measurable. I'm curious, if I go to my MD and tell them I think I have chronic inflammatory response syndrome, are they going to have any idea what I'm talking about? You know, um, I have a practice that... that that might be unique in, in the U.S. I, I don't know of other docs that have decided that this is their, their, their bread and butter. Uh, 
when I was doing fanny practice and seeing 40, 50 people a day, and I hate to say that I did that uh, for 20-some years, I would not have been able to answer what a CIRS was. If you ask me to describe what happens when people get bacteria in the bloodstream from the urinary tract and they get sick as a dog, I could have told you about inflammation and clotting disorders and cytokines a little bit, but I wouldn't have called it a CIRS. Why? Because CIRS is a new jargon term. Dr. Thomas described it in 1972. It's not new. The real sad issue for me is that the hallmark, the, 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 the best keynote address about this whole innate immune response syndrome, the uh, the CIRS was given by Charles Janeway at the Cold Spring Harbor Symposium in 1989. So that was only 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. And and gosh, you get out of medical school, and the half life of knowledge used to be five years. Now in in this field, it's one year. And if you don't keep track of everything, you know, every year, you won't you won't keep up. Gotcha. So answer your system to your your doctor. If he goes on to PubMed he'll find 45,000 references to these inflammatory response syndromes. I mean, it's well published, but it's not necessarily something that he would be conversant in if he's been out for a few years. It's in every textbook of medicine, but who has time to read a textbook? You know what I mean? Right, right. Okay, we've got our halftime segment here. We're going to uh, thank our sponsors once again, and then we'll bring you right back with uh, Dr. Wow as well. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. We also like to thank our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay. Sounds like the cue for Dr. Dater. Hello, Dater. Yeah, there is a little bit of uh, Beethoven in the background. Yep. Yes, we can uh, unmute Dr. Shoemaker as well there, Chris. Uh, Dater, any comments or questions so far? Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I have a bunch of questions. Um, I'm well aware that many molds, quote, from wet buildings, may produce powerful, powerful toxins 
And yeah, the, the best known, of course, is uh, uh, penicillium uh, or, or penicillin uh, made by penicillium uh, mold. And there are others, um, and you know about it, uh, uh, cyclosporin, which is given to people who were in transplant uh, operations and so on to prevent rejection. So in other words, yes, there. I, I, I think there are powerful, powerful toxins over there. I have a, a down-to-earth question. I'm in houses, I measure outside, and I make up those numbers, but they are not outrageous. I measure 20,000 mold spores on the outside and 1,000 on the inside in some places of the house. And people say, oh, my God, I'm exposed to a thousand mold spores per cubic meter of air. Nobody knows what that is. Um, but I, 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 I don't know how to interpret sometimes data or get at it when people are exposed to wet building syndrome, which I equate with um, uh, uh, mold spores mainly. Are there bacteria? Yes. Are there other things? Yes. But mainly bacteria. And I have not been able to find a good answer for myself or for clients for whom I'm working. So in other oh. words, what what... What are your thoughts on what is causing this? There's a, a variety of biological substances in these damp buildings, Dr. Shoemaker. Have you pinpointed any one thing, or do you think it's a combination, or what do you think? It's a question that's been looked at in two recent publications. One's the GAO report that came out in September of 08, and then the World Health Organization uh, report that uh, came out in April of 2009. Now, granted, it's, it was been in preparation for a couple of years, so some material is dated. But each one of these uh, publications emphasizes that what is inside water-damaged buildings is a mixture of compounds that are toxins and inflammogens. Now, I'm going to disagree with Dieter, and he won't be mad at me about that, I don't think that mold spores are the main problem at all. I think the problem is a series of things, including fragments of mold spores, much smaller than three microns. I think it is uh, components from actinomycetes as well as bacteria. And the interaction, the synergistic interaction between those three main groups, emerging now from the, the mud, so to speak, as other players we cannot ignore include mycobacteria, the same overall group that contains tuberculosis, for example. And we now know there are some protozoa that are involved with human illness as well. But overriding these living creatures that still can make us sick when they die are chemicals that are neither alive nor dead. And they include beta-glucans and manans and hemolysins and proteinases, each one of which in these categories will activate the innate immune pattern receptors that set off this inflammatory response. And the body does not have a multiplicity of ways to respond to foreign antigens. 
basically you've got to funnel through the receptors that we have. So the response of these receptors is somewhat stereotyped. And I cannot tell by looking at a blood test whether it was a penicillium that made this person's C4A go up or an endotoxin or beta-glucan. They all can do exactly the same thing. And that's the conclusion of these two papers, is that there is no way, as we sit here now, that we can sort out which one or group of ones of the compounds in the chemical mixture makes people sick. Now, toxins have gotten so much attention in this field that some of the inflammation has gotten overridden, of course, not in recent literature, but it is the inflammation that is the problem. Uh, the World Health Organization emphasizes the immune problems that develop from exposure to water damaged buildings. Uh, the, the GAO certainly was a bit critical of, of other studies looking only at mycotoxins in that they ignored the uh, immunology of these toxins as well. So I think direct poisoning from toxins is still just a small tip of the iceberg of what makes people ill. And the reason that I'm going to say that is that our new therapies go directly at immune mechanisms and don't do anything for toxins. And that's been the final pathway that's brought hope to some people who are desperately ill and suffering for a long, long time. So I think that's interesting. I've seen discussion of um, uh, toxicity and, and definitions of toxicity that that I guess you could say they're the toxic properties of whatever are leading to this immune response as well. So I think some people consider everything, all the reactions to be a toxic reaction, and you're separating the two? I sure am. I think if we look at immunology as opposed to toxicology, we will look at an exponential host response and not a linear dose response. The, and as I mentioned, Lewis Thomas's work was prescient, and then he talked about this 35 years ago. In an immune response, there should be uh, interacting exponential responses that set off more responses for which, in a normal host, there should be feedback regulation. When the feedback regulation fails, the illness explodes. Now, that's not what we see in toxicology. Also, the immune issues with re-exposure there is a shorter time to a greater response, not what you see in a simple dose-response curve. And more importantly, there is this idea of genetic susceptibility. If I take my father's Coumadin and give it to myself, you know, how I'm going to react is not subject to the fact I'm related to him genetically. It is going to be a mere property of the compound itself. So the genetic susceptibility feeds right into this changing, ever-modulating host response itself. Now, when we look at this idea of host response, the critical new element is another jargon term, and boy, I got a lot of them. This acronym is TGF-beta-1, transforming growth factor beta-1, transforming. That means it changes cells. Growth factor means cells respond to it. And beta-1 means there's a whole bunch of them. TGF-beta-1 is directly responsible for suppressing normal 
recognition of self. So I've talked last time about the incredible amount of autoimmunity that we see uh, in, in patients, especially with gliadin antibodies and cardiolipins, as well as some others. TGF-beta-1 is directly responsible for that. Now, back when I talked to you last April, we just were starting measuring TGF-beta-1. We now have over 3,000 patients in this data set. TGF-beta-1 remodels cells that line lung, and in the worst cases of pulmonary fibrosis, this is what TGF-beta-1 is doing. But holy cow, in children especially, it's TGF-beta-1 that in high levels is responsible for the wheezing these kids do. If 21% of, of asthma in the U.S. is caused by exposure to water-damaged buildings, and the study by Fisk from EPA in 2007 says that's what it is, 21% of those, MAR data look like 95% of that, of that group is due to TGF-beta-1. That comes out from immune responses interacting uh, with cellular elements. It has nothing to do with toxicology. Really exciting findings. Interesting. Now, let me uh, move on. And, and Dr. Dieter, we will bring you back for the roundup here in about five or ten minutes. That would be, that would be fine. Uh, thank you. Um, I want to move on to how you are now treating this chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that fits into the work you're telling us about now? Sure. I think you said that you're going to put the paper... Um, that I'm going to give in September to the water to the um, International Healthy Buildings Conference on your website. That's the innate immunity and capillary hypoperfusion building uh, study. That finishes uh, basically with a nine-step protocol for for treatment. Ideally, if we've got someone in a water damaged building who's sick, we're going to get them out. I mean, either the indoor air quality people fix the building after you've got the the water intrusion stopped, or you just remove them from the building. Uh, I still use cholestyramine and, and, and another related bile sequestering agent called Wellcall as first step of, of treatment. If they've got, we talked before about the vision test, if they've got a visual contrast sensitivity positive test, they've got to take one of those other two drugs. And you don't get beyond step two without doing this. But basically, once you've got them out of exposure, once you've got the, the, the basic toxin aspect fixed, then you go after inflammation. Inflammation can give autoimmunity, say that if they've got gliadin antibodies, you take them off gluten. Uh, try to tell that to a mom who's got a six and a four year old that no uh, wheat products or oats or barley, that's tough, but mm. you have to do it. Um, if you've got cardiolipin antibodies and, and, and it's in a young lady who wants to become pregnant, golly, her risk of first trimester fetal loss. It's just huge, and that can be treated a little differently. If one of the inflammation compounds called MMP9 uh, is too high, uh, and you can measure that in a blood test, we can lower that with, with a given medication, uh, peoglitazone. But in order to get that benefit, you've got to be on a special diet that keeps the sugar responses low to the food you eat. Kind of low glycemic index diet, if, if, if you will. We also really can never underestimate what happens to immune responses and protection when MSH is low, because low MSH lets in opportunistic colonizing organisms into us, and the worst ones are the biofilm-forming coagulase-negative stents. They're usually methicillin-resistant, 
but they don't cause an infection. They sit there in your nose and they knock off MSH some more and they, they, they turn on cytokine responses like crazy and the patient just doesn't get better till they're gone. Once you've gotten rid of that, the patient's still ill, then we look to see, is C3A too high? Well, high-dose statins will fix that. If you've got high C4A and the person's still sick, we can lower that with erythropoietin. If they're still sick, and some are, TGF-beta-1, we now know we can fix that uh, with a drug called Losartan that has a breakdown product uh, that is... Uh, one that directly blocks TGF-beta-1. It's really exciting to have this now. And finally, the last step, for those that still are ill, and we're looking at a small, you know, kind of top of the pyramid here, if they have low VIP, we can give them VIP replacement safely and effectively. And honest to God, Cliff and Joe, this this has been kind of the the revolution in my practice. Uh, We've been using this... uh, under the FDA designation of, of VIP as an orphan drug, and we're entering into a clinical trial now. It will be a double-blinded trial. But I think the real issue is that if and only if you treated all of these underlying abnormalities, and if you're still sick and you can't skip steps, for God's sake, you cannot skip steps, but if you do still have persistent symptoms, uh, then, then VIP replacement has a spectacular upside to it. Am I correct in saying that a lot of this, these additional steps that you have just outlined for us are really rather new, or are they adaptations of older information? Well, they're new. Uh, it wasn't until 2006 that we did two different studies uh, that were presented in 2007 in the chronic fatigue meetings that proved that we could correct C4A um, with low-dose erythropoietin. Uh, It was 2008 that we found out about TGF-beta-1 in 2009 uh, in April before I presented the material fixing TGF-beta-1. And we've only been using TGF-beta, correction, we've only been using VIP since Thanksgiving 2008. So these are are hot off the presses. Uh, The VIP paper... Uh, is one that I think will be the most eagerly received uh, of, of ones that, that our group has done because the stuff's easy to take, not expensive, the side effect profile is trivial, uh, it works, and, geez, it works fast. It's just really, really exciting. If you still have high TGF-beta-1 and C4A, don't use VIP. It won't work. But once you fix those and a person's still feeling bad, whip the VIP in and, boom, away they go. That's amazing. I, I just uh, I love listening to this, and uh, I hope that uh, you know we're making progress in getting that information out to others. I know that's why you do all this research and publish these papers and do the case and control studies, etc. Now let me uh, move over to. I know we're running a little low on time. I wanted to go over to the other paper just for a moment. We mentioned it in passing. The exposure to interior environments of water damaged building causes. CFS-like illness in pediatric patients, a case control study. We're not going to have a great deal of time left here. We've got about nine minutes or so, maybe 10. Can you give us a little overview of some of the most important things in that paper that we haven't touched on yet? Yes. Kids develop an inflammatory illness that's a little different than adults. 
they don't get some of the hormone problems with male hormones, androgens, or uh, ACTH and cortisol, because they're just not mature. But they get way more problems with TGF-beta-1. They get way more autoimmunity than adults do. For example, 58% of these uh, kids with illness from water-damaged buildings will have autoantibodies to gliadin, 58% of them. And, and, and you see them, you know, you give them a cupcake, which is full of gluten, and a kid goes nuts, and the teacher says, uh, well, you know, every time Charlie uh, gets this uh, sugar or, or foods like that, he acts real hyper. It's not too long before someone whips out the Ritalin or amphetamines or something like that. Mm-hmm. But the real issue is that if we look at autoimmunity in children, it jumps off the page like a sore thumb, way more even than in adults. And I think that's a real basic thing is that, you know, we see the same genetic susceptibility, same low MSH in our cases. Uh, TGF-beta-1 is higher in its elevation compared to adults with their elevation in cases compared to controls. Uh, MMP9 is not quite as bad in kids. Uh, as it is uh, in adults, uh, C4A is about the same. So they're a little different uh, than adults. Uh, I hope this, this genomics assay that's, that's coming down the pike will, will add in our, our, our missing pieces. Let me ask another quick one. In the, under the methods section, I, I, I'm not as familiar with this type of uh, research as you, obviously, and it says here that there was an internal review board approval for the retrospective analysis, and it was obtained from the Copernicus Group, uh, IRB, in Cary, North Carolina. What's the significance of that statement? Well, if you're going to do research on people, you better, in this day and age, have somebody say, this research is okay to do. Uh, it used to be that you know, a physician could publish a series of cases and, and, and get it out there, now, if you don't have permission from an independent body that looks at your methods, what are you going to do, looks at your protocol, makes your informed consent's right, uh, you're, going to, you're going to have criticism. And I, I think that criticism is probably very well, well-founded. You know, we don't want people out there without kind of control for independent third parties. But what the IRB also does is, is help the investigator, you know, kind of refine what they're going to do. Now, for this one, this is called a retrospective review, and all we were allowed to do is look at what do these people have when they come in with their blood tests before they're treated. And this was not one in which we, we applied for permission to publish treatment results, um, and that would be important to have at some time. We've had other papers with IRB approval for treatment results. But this just basically says I'm allowed to keep uh, individual patient identification private, uh, and not discoverable by judges and attorneys, uh, but is something that we can now put data together uh, and not be criticized for uh, doing things wrong. And last on this on this particular paper, um, the goal of this paper, certainly there's more than one, but I think one of the big goals was to help, and this ties into a couple listener questions we have coming in right now. We're going to get to those in a moment. But the goal was to help physicians who are seeing pediatric patients with currently diagnosed CFS to rule out or exclude water damage, build, water damage building illness as a possible cause for that? Yes. Uh, this, this, this basically uh, is an algorithm. Uh, if you think your child has chronic fatigue and non-restorative sleep and delayed recovery from normal activity and it seemingly meets 
the 2006 uh, chronic fatigue definition for, for adults, for children, excuse me, which is different than for adults, go ahead and do the labs. Do the HLA. Do the, the C4A and TGF beta 1 and autoimmune studies because these kids light up like Christmas. That ties directly into uh, a text question we just got in, and I want to have Environmental Annie read that one. Yeah, our listener is asking, what can we do to help children who are now in the extensive, I'm sorry, is it extensively? Oh, you extensively. know what, Annie, take the second one first. We'll come back to that okay. one. Yeah. Okay, uh, let me do that one. Doctor, yeah. are, are any other physicians using your techniques uh, to treat patients, or are you the only one that's doing this? The good news is that I'm part of a group of 25 physicians that are pooling data across the country. Uh, so, yes, we have a, a joint uh, multi-site approach uh, ongoing. Okay, thanks. Uh, okay, we're going to go to the roundup right now, but we kind of just went right into it. We're going to skip the music and all that, and I'm just going to go to this next uh, question with Annie in a moment. But I also I want to add to that last one a little bit from the listener. How long do you expect it will take before these treatments become available from physicians other than those 25 others across America? Well, they're all published. Uh, the VIP stuff uh, is, is going to be coming pretty quickly. Um, so th there's, there's no reason that uh, this material is not available to anybody now. Okay. Annie? What can we do to help children who are now in the extensively water-damaged schools in America? I think it's an absolutely fascinating question. For years, I asked for visual contrast screening to be done in every third grader. Third graders have eye tests done uh, for visual acuity. It would take three extra minutes to do visual contrast. Uh, it's such a simple idea. It should be done. Uh, what we need to have is some sort of organized approach from parents and physicians alike to those involved with uh, public health. Uh, and, and that means show the data. And it means if we just look at chronic fatigue papers, you know, someone's got to read those and pay attention to them and not pretend they don't exist. So unfortunately, in this case, we have to educate the school districts uh, because they're the ones who are charged with paying the money for the new roof and fixing the whole kindergarten pod. Uh, and, you know, who in this day and age has got extra money in a school system? But then you, all you need is, is, is one or two uh, people desperately ill from old illness, and uh, litigation makes the cost for the school district go nuts. Uh, it is, begins with education, but then it also uh, begins with effective therapy of those children, too. All right. We're in the roundup now. We're going to start with Cliff. Uh, yeah. He had a follow-up, yeah, I believe. Yeah, I just had a follow-up to something that you said, Doctor. You know, you had asked for these third graders to undergo this visual contrast testing. Uh, how does it show up? Uh, the people that um, you know ha that are in water damaged buildings, do they have uh, worse visual acuity? It's not visual acuity. Uh, contrast is the ability to detect an edge. Uh, and the simple example that, that I think of, if you're uh, a batter in Wrigley Field and everybody in center field is wearing a white shirt, the batter trying to pick out a white baseball is going to have a hard time seeing white against white. But if you have a green uh, background, you'll see white against green uh, very, very more easily. The Snellen testing we do for visual acuity is 100% black against 100% white. If you reduce the 100% on both black and white and you start making it more gray, 
reducing the intensity of the black and increasing the intensity of gray from the white, what you will see is there becomes a time that the eye cannot see the edge of a black pattern presented on a gray background. Now, that simple bedside, non-invasive test has been used for years in neurotoxicology. Uh, Dr. Ken Hodnell is the one who pioneered its use back in the late 90s with hysteria uh, when he was with EPA, but it's been used by the Air Force, the CDC is studying it, EPA has used it in other places besides Dr. Hudnell, and it's so easy to pick up a reproducible loss of ability to detect an edge at six cycles per degree of visual arc and then at nine cycles degree per visual arc. Okay. Really simple. Now, we're at 1 o'clock, Dr. Shoemaker. Do you have another five minutes, or I understand if you don't? Uh, listen, this this is so much fun for me. If you want <laughs> okay. uh, five hours, <laughs> I, I will, you're going to have to go to the bathroom before I get done. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's go over to uh, Annie, and then we've got another text question, I do believe. I'm thinking of our less technical listeners, but um, can you explain the importance of your research in simpler terms? Yes. Let's take an illness where a patient says, I don't feel good, doctor, I'm not thinking my joints are bad, and convert it into a reasonable scientific explanation with objective parameters that give rise to treatment. Instead of saying, my memory's bad and I'm tired, we now can say, my TGF-beta-1's too high, my C4A's too high, fix those, let me see what I got. Gotcha. Gotcha. Excellent. Dr. Dieter, do we have you back on the line? Hello, Dr. Dieter. Yeah, am I, am I unmuted here? You're unmuted. <laughs> <All right. laughs> what? I never know that I can cough. No. Uh, one of my favorite uh, uh, subjects is the dose response uh, curve. I've been teaching it for many, 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 many years. And there is one thing that uh, uh, apparently is, 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 is incredible. All dose response curves are exponential. That's why we take... And I'm, I have to use the L word. It's called the logarithm. <laughs> the logarithm of it, which makes it a straight line. Now, if you, on the dose, and then you have the response, you get a straight line. Now, if you take the log out of the dose, and then you still get an exponential um, response, now there is something wrong in the <laughs> There is no question about it. And I don't know how... Uh, how uh, Dr. Schumacher, Shoemaker, excuse me, um, um, uh, 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 how, how he meant that. But uh, this, this, is, this is the old question in toxicology and responses in, 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 in a mammalian body, or for that matter, in a fly, is, you know, we know kind of what one chemical does. We kind of know what another chemical does. And now you put two together, you already have question marks. And God forbid you start with 10 chemicals. My God, it is almost impossible. Now, if you have an infinite amount of time and an infinite amount of money, you can study that. But it is mind-boggling, and I think this is what Dr. Shoemaker is, is, is talking about. There are things out there we don't know 100%, but we know they are there, we can measure some of the responses in the body, and these responses are apparently 
producing uh, a disease or mis- discomfort or, you know, something like that. Dr. What Shin- else did I write down over here? Well, I, I think I think Dieter once again is 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 right on the button with with his analysis. The critical additional factor to put in his impossible way to sort out ten factors exponentially responding is now to make the host itself change. And here's where the linear responses that I see in in, in medicine with with dose and response. Well, we sure, we see it every day with the drugs. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's done every day, literally. Right, right. But now, now we have this, this changing host in a changing environment, and what, it, what can we do that stays constant? The only thing that's constant is we know they are in a water-damaged building. Well, and yeah. defining the exposure indices is, is what people are, are spending lots and lots of money on, and it's, it's where, in the end, final answers will come. But I'm reminded of, of Joseph Snow practicing medicine in London. He saw people drinking water from one well getting cholera, and those that drank from another well didn't get cholera. He didn't even know what bacteria was. He didn't know that cholera made a toxin. But what he said was that stop drinking from well number one. <laughs> and the cholera went away. And the basic response, and still back to, to uh, Thomas Hill, is that we have enough now, information now, to act to defend our adults and especially our children. Even if we don't have all the, the, the math worked out and we don't have all the chemicals worked out. My gracious, if you asked me what TGF-beta-1 was in March of 2008, I would have said a promising compound, but I don't know. Now, if you ask me what TGF-beta-1 is, it's one of the most important ones I've got. So what will be the answer next year is what is the critical issue? Will it be VIP? Could be. But the, my point is that we can act now to identify this illness, identify who needs to be treated, initiate treatment, and stop the argument that we see dominating school systems and courtrooms about water-damaged buildings. Well said. Well said, and I hope we're we're going to get a, a revised biotoxin pathway out. I've got my. Yeah. <laughs> we need one. We'll, we'll we'll work on that with you if you don't mind. I think I could figure that out. But uh, listen, before we go, uh, first I want to make sure the listeners are aware. I know we talked about this before the show. I know you're speaking soon up in Syracuse. Can you tell the listeners when that will be and what the subject will be? There is an international conference held every couple of years called Healthy Buildings. Um, and they have a website, Healthy Buildings 2009. Uh, I would hope people would take a look at that. The conference looks to truly have an international collection of, of, of experts. Uh, the health session that, that I'm going to be in uh, is on Monday morning. Uh, the talks are fast. You, you, you better have your, your, your ears open because we get nine minutes per talk. Uh, but this one really looks to be a of uh, uh, great interest, and I, and I hope someone uh, uh, will be able to be there because maybe there's a question or two afterwards we can discuss. Very well. And then the last thing before we go, is, is there anything you'd like to add that, that we kind of missed here on these two papers in particular? Not necessarily about the two papers, but I, I think what I want to add is that you guys really do need a round of applause, and if you don't have good music for that applause, I'll just clap for you. <laughs> you have, you've, you've done so much to... You know, bring, I think, a, 
an open discussion. You've had people on both sides of the argument and three or four other sides I've never heard of. <laughs> and I don't know how much money you make, but I don't think you get very much. But maybe if you just accept some thanks from people like me, uh, that would be the first start of repaying what you've done for the rest of us. Well, that certainly helps. We, we really do appreciate that. We had one more text in here, I think. How long do you... Uh, oh, my home is fully remediated. I still cannot re-enter without serious chest lung pain. Will I ever be able to re-enter? And is this home safe to sell? Hmm. Well, that's. I think the, the, the questioner already knows that it's not safe to sell. If a person gets sick, uh, you pretty much, if you're a business owner, uh, have got to guarantee a safe workplace and same thing with a safe, safe sale. We know enough about what makes people feel bad with chest tightness so that the first thing they should be doing would be measuring, say, things like VEGF and C3A and C4A and TGF beta-1 with re-exposure. When they say the building's been completely remediated, that's tough. Remediation is not just tearing out bad drywall and, and, and insulation, putting kills on some studs. Cleaning is the critical issue. And ongoing filtration uh, using 0.3 micron HEPA at least uh, is absolutely essential for people who've been in water-damaged buildings. But the other issue is it sounds like this guy, this questioner, might be a woman, sorry, he is likely to be sicker quicker. And that means the time that they need to become ill is much shorter than what they had before. And the amount of exposure, here Dieter will get going with those responses, I'm not careful. <laughs> the, the amount that, that they need to be exposed is much less. Uh, one guy was trying to figure out how many toxin molecules or beta-glucan molecules were needed to make people previously ill sick again. And they were coming up with numbers of 10 to the minus 20th grams. You know, zeptograms. I have no idea how small that number is. Wow. Like saying, how big are the fjords in Alaska? They're big. (laughs) How small is the minus 20th? It could be as many as a thousand molecules that are all in the size of, of, you know, incredibly uh, molecular weight down in the 500s range. This this is just phenomenal of what little it takes to set up the host response. And to go back to what Dieter's point is, if you can't measure it, but it's there, you can only measure the response. How do you know that it's there? Because you put people back in again and again and again and again. You use epidemiology to have associations. You use epidemiology to show risk, which gives you causation, even if you can't measure what makes people sick. There's a follow-up. I'll give you that one, but I think one of the things we can do to help is also, um, well, let's do the follow-up, and then we'll get your website and where they can maybe get some more information. Is there anything over the counter to reduce the burning lung airway pain after re-exposure? No. I didn't think so. All right. And can you tell us what your website is and where they can maybe get some more information that can help out? There's two websites. The newest one uh, is www.biotoxin, not, not plural, biotoxin.info. There really is an info. I didn't know that for until recently. Uh, the other one that's a little older that, that doesn't have the updates that biotoxin.info does is chronic neurotoxins. That one does have an S on the end of it, dot com. The biotoxin.info has, uh, I think you have to sign in. There's no charge for that, but it gets you access to papers and bibliography. I think there's about 10,000 references on that site. 
so that if people wanted more information, that would be a reasonable place to start. The eye test can be taken on both of those sites, uh, and individuals should, should consider doing that. Very good. Well, I want to really thank this week's guest, Dr. Richie Shoemaker. Thanks for joining us again. We really appreciate having you back, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back again for years to come. Well, that is most welcome idea. When I get VIP, I'll be calling you. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you soon. I also uh, want to uh, make sure that we're going to take our uh, little traditional August break here. We're going to return the first Friday after Labor Day, September 11th. We've got a bunch of great guests we're working on bringing in, including one that uh, Dr. Shoemaker uh, mentioned, uh, Ken Hudnell. Uh, we've got a promise that he'll come in after he releases his latest research paper. And uh, we'll keep you posted at the IAQradio.com website and through our newsletter. But before we go, I want to sure, be sure to thank uh, my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. Always my pleasure, Joe. The Z-Man, Environmental Annie, Ann Kowalecki. Thank you, Joe. And the Wingman, Chris Boisel at the controls. Our thanks, as always, go out to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild, but most importantly to you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Thanks, and come back and join us September 11th for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.